Good evening, everybody. Nice to see you all here. You too, Daniel. That's a, that's a running joke with Daniel and I. Well, welcome to our third installment in this series I'm presenting on God's sovereignty. We've called the series, Thy Will Be Done. And if you were able to make the first two lessons, the introduction night and last week our lesson on prayer then you know we've been covering some challenging material. And if you know me, that's par for the course. Last week, we talked God's purpose in prayer, how it is that God is not changed by our prayers, and yet He still desires that we pray. The first week, we did an introduction of sorts, one that was intended to expose that so much of our current day teaching and preaching really distorts who God is and reduces Him to little more than a genie in a bottle. Tonight, we'll pick up on that theme a little bit more. If you missed either of those two weeks and are interested in what you missed, I want to encourage you that you can receive those lessons both in your bookstore here, but also at a website that I run. It's just my name, stephenarmstrong.com, Stephen with a PH. And you can download anything I teach for free at any time if you're capable of doing that. If none of that makes any sense, go to your bookstore. Now, those last two weeks, I'll grant you, were probably a bit challenging, as I said. They probably covered some things you hadn't heard before, maybe in a way you hadn't heard it before. And I thought maybe I'd go easy on you this week, uh, cover something that really was not controversial at all. So tonight we're going to talk about your money and your wealth and your finances and God's sovereignty over those things. Because as I said, that's the purpose in this series, God's sovereignty. And no, just in case you're wondering, I'm not going to talk about tithing. I know how difficult that topic is for anyone to cover these days. I'm reminded of a story of a preacher in a small southern church who was concerned about the state of affairs in that church and felt a, a revival was needed. So he decided one day to preach. And as he goes up to bring this topic to the congregation, he says, if this church is ever going to get better, we're going to have to get out of our sick bed and walk. And of course, as is tradition in a lot of smaller churches, southern churches in particular, the congregation would answer back at times and encourage their pastor a little. And so they answered back, let it walk. Preacher, let it walk. And as he heard that, he felt good. He felt like maybe he was onto something. So he moved on to the next part of his message. And he said, well, if this church is really going to become something, we need to cast aside our hindrances and we need to run. And, of course, in response, the congregation answered, well, let it run, preacher, let it run. Well, now he's really getting into his message because, of course, it seems they're, they're hearing it and they're responding. So his next thought is, if the church really, really wants to become what it can be, it's going to have to take up its wings and fly. And right on cue, the congregation responds, well, let it fly, preacher, let it fly. Well, he seems he's got him right where he wants him. It's time to bring the heart of the message to the congregation. And so he says in a loud voice, if this church is going to fly, it's going to take money. And, of course, they responded, let it walk, preacher, let it walk. <laughs> so I know how unpopular it can be to talk about money if you're talking about tithing. That's actually the opposite of what I want to talk about. I don't want to talk about what you give this church. I want to talk about what you expect to get from God. What kind of money do you think is due you? And that's why our topic tonight is called the love of money, for the lack of a better title. Is it just me, or is our entire church, and I'm talking the church universal now, not just Castle Hills, is our entire church obsessed and preoccupied with money and finances? Is it just me saying that? Every time I turn on the television, every time I look at a book now, every time I hear somebody preach, it seems that that's the topic. Finances and money. Finances and wealth. How many church bulletin boards have you seen lately? You know, the ones on the street that advertise the upcoming sermon series for this week or the message for this week. How many of those have you seen lately that touch on the issue of money or finances? This one tonight doesn't count. There was no sign. I checked. And what's not surprising is the bigger the ministry, the bigger the church, the more common it is to hear them teach on the issues of money or finances. Consequently... Most Christians today see their faith primarily in the context of how it benefits them materially, of how it benefits them monetarily in their finances. 
In fact, I'll use the Christianese that's popular for today. I don't say money. I don't say finances. I say blessing. That's what we're talking about, right? What is God going to do to bless me today? Come to my church and he'll bless your socks off. But, of course, we all know what he really means, right? He means I'll get money. I'll have wealth. How many Christians measure their faith in that way? Probably most, especially in those larger churches. And what do Christians who sit under that kind of teaching week after week after week, what do you think they get out of it? In fact, here's the question you should ask. I've done this, and you'll find the answer very interesting. Ask a Christian, particularly one in one of these larger churches that focuses on money so much, ask them to define what a blessing is. Give, give an example. What does a blessing from God look like? Do you know what most of those answers look like and sound like? Most of them are measured in terms of wealth or health. God blessing me materially or God blessing my body. Those are the ways we measure God's blessing. And while it's true, health and wealth can be areas in which God blesses us, that's absolutely the case. That's absolutely true. Did Christ come born as a man live his life on this earth 30-something years, walk around for three years teaching the apostles before dying on a cross, did he do all of that to ensure that you and I will expect wealth and health? That was his chief concern, you think? If not, why is it the chief topic in so many of these churches? Should our primary concern in life be our prosperity in this world? You know, that's what a lot of churches are teaching, and I mean a lot in this city. Does God desire to make you financially prosperous? Is that what he means when he promises to bless you? In fact, is wealth a blessing? Is prosperity even something to be desired? Spiritually speaking, are we in a better place if we're rich or worse place? And can we do anything or say anything that will guarantee God's going to give us everything we want? in the area of prosperity and finances. You know, I've said throughout this series, and I'm going to say it again tonight, my intention is not to cover every aspect of this topic, nor any other that I bring up, not every aspect of wealth or financial prosperity, not everything the Bible has to say about it. That would take a month of Wednesdays. I'll be lucky if I get seven out of you. Instead, my focus is on God's sovereignty and more specifically, how he exercises that sovereignty in this creation, through his children, to his glory, in the various aspects of life that we're going to cover in this series. And tonight we're going to cover primarily issues of wealth, God's sovereignty over finances, his purpose in giving wealth, the role of our desires and the impact of our finances on our walk as a Christian. Next week we're going to continue this discussion, sort of a part two, and next week we'll focus a little bit more on health. So if I don't offend you tonight, I have a pretty good shot next week. And as always, we're going to examine these topics through God's Word. The thing that seems to be missing in so many of these larger churches. We're going to rely on Scripture to be our guide as we examine passages of Scripture that deal with this topic. That's going to be our approach. And more importantly, and particularly in this area, this area of money, we're going to look at these Scriptures in context. We're going to look at these Scriptures properly interpreted because so often is the case these scriptures are twisted for dishonest gain by men who have motives other than serving the Lord. We're not going to do that here. But before we examine tonight's passage, I need to take stock with you of where the church stands today in the area of money, on the, in the area of this issue. Where does our church stand today? And again, I'm not talking about Castle Hills First Baptist Church so much. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I've never sat in on a Sunday service in this church. So I don't speak from any experience with what's presented here on Sunday. I'm talking about the church universal. And here's where it stands. In short, it's obsessed. It's absolutely obsessed with wealth and health. Largely because of the false teaching that's going unchecked in pulpits across the country. It's become so bad, in fact, that I'm convinced that if it were possible Christ could come back to the earth live his life here again, walking around and teaching and preaching the good news as he did the first time, doing miracles as he did the first time. If that were to happen again, I promise you that unless he drove a Hummer limo, wore a Rolex watch, and pastored a 20,000-seat stadium church along with full television, radio, and glossy, best-selling book ministries, he wouldn't get a minute's notice. In fact... 
I think we might question his credentials as the Son of God. Because you know what we do now? We pick our pastors in so many cases the way we would pick our stockbroker. Because unless he's wealthy and successful, then just how good can his message really be? You know, if I don't have a stockbroker that's very rich, I have to question his financial advice, right? Somehow, somewhere along the way, we now judge the accuracy of our preacher's message by how personally successful he is in life. At least that seems to be what so many Christians are doing. And why so many men have become so financially wealthy in preaching a gospel of wealth. Well, I'm an equal opportunity critic here. So it's not just the United States where you see this trend. I had the privilege of going to Kenya last year on a trip to teach Kenyan pastors the book of Genesis. And while I was there, I was stunned to find this country, a country I'd never been to before, giving every indication it was the most Christian place on earth. Billboards everywhere saying, praise the Lord. Bumper stickers on the back of government vehicles that said, Jesus lives. Every checkout counter you would see in any little store you went into had postcards that said things like, Jesus lives, and had scripture on them. It was as if there was no one but believers around in this country. But then as you look just a little deeper, you realize it was just a cult. The whole nation had been taken over by men with dishonest purposes who had come in to preach a prosperity gospel, had turned Christianity into nothing more than superstition, And all these bumper stickers, all these placards you saw, they were merely people trying to gain the favor of some God who apparently would respond if I just said these magic words. What was so stunning to me was it felt just like home. We're just a little more subtle about it. We're a little more sophisticated than they were. The church's fascination with money and its obsession with material blessing is really not that hard to understand, and it's not all that new. Even when Christ walked the earth the first time, Wealth was a central concern for his listeners. I mean, look at the Gospels. He spends more time addressing money to his disciples and to his followers in the Gospels than virtually any other subject he has that he addresses. And in fact, I'm sure you're familiar with many of the things Christ taught on this subject. For example, Matthew 6.31. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all those other things, they'll be added to you. You know, it's funny. You don't hear the prosperity gospel folks quoting that scripture very often. It's not one of their favorites. Christ says, don't worry about wealth and prosperity, for that's what unbelievers do. You know, when he says Gentiles, Christ is referring to unbelievers. He says it's a mark of no faith that you are preoccupied with wealth issues, provision issues. You see, both the issues of wealth and of health all come back to a more central issue, and that is trust. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? Do you trust in yourself or do you trust in God? Unbelievers, they don't have any choice. They don't have anyone else they trust in except themselves and their wealth. Job in 31.24 says this, If I have put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I have gloated because my wealth was great and because my hand had secured so much, if I had looked at the sun when it shone or the moon going in splendor and my heart became secretly enticed and my hand threw a kiss from my mouth, That, too, would have been an iniquity calling for judgment. For I would have denied God above. Do you hear what Job's saying? Job is comparing a man who puts his confidence in his wealth to a man who worships the sun and moon. They are equivalent because they both show no trust in God and therefore they deny God above. So, Christian, I ask you, where is your trust? God or yourself? Now, I know we'd all say God, right? We wouldn't be in this room. James gives a challenging statement in his letter. He says we aren't to be just hearers of the word, but doers. And he says that to an extent, how well you do what you say is proof or lack thereof 
of whether you believe what you say. So you say you believe in God, you say you trust in God. Would I be able to tell by looking at your actions or not? And in this area in particular, what do you think I'd see? What would you see in me? If we're honest, most Christians would probably answer the question, who do you trust, by saying both. I trust in God and I trust in myself. Because after all, doesn't the Bible say God helps those who help themselves? (laughs) Smart crowd. No, the answer is no, that doesn't appear in the Bible. More importantly, that's against what's written in the Bible. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who can't help themselves. That's the truth of Scripture. God helps those who acknowledge they're hopeless and need help. God does not help those who help themselves. We call them haughty. We call them proud. And God says he will frustrate those people, not help them. Folks, you can't say you trust in God and then live your life relying on yourself. This, is, this isn't... You know, this is like saying you're a little bit pregnant. This is all or nothing here, folks. You either trust in God or you don't. And God is a jealous God. And He's jealous not just for your allegiance to Him. He's jealous for your dependence upon Him. Look what He told the nation of Israel as they were preparing to enter the promised land. In Deuteronomy 8.11, He said this, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His ordinances and His statutes, which I'm commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses on the north side of San Antonio and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud. And you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of a rock of flint. In the wilderness He fed you manna which your fathers did not know that He might humble you and that He might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, My power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. Do you know that could be the anthem for the modern American church? My power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. Our culture exalts, exalts, lifts up the self-made man, don't we? Self-reliance is key in our culture, right? Reliance on anything else, in fact, or anyone else is considered wrong. It's considered lazy. Now, to be honest, God does not endorse a lazy man either. We're not talking about being self-reliant or being lazy. There's another place you can be. And that's trusting in God while doing what He asks you to do. Remember last week, or I think it was probably the first week I was here, I mentioned that so much of this False teaching that's out there right now focuses on self-esteem as one of the principal things you have to seek, self-esteem. And if you remember that first night, I told you that the word self-esteem, that's a fancy way of saying pride. Pride in self. Pride that exalts the self and diminishes God or our reliance on God is sin. Clearly, we need less self-esteem in this world, and we need more Christ-esteem in this world. We need to rely less on ourselves and recognize we rely exclusively on God. In Jeremiah 9.23, we hear this. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. If you pride yourself on having no dependence on anyone else, you're a self-made man or woman, 
That's what makes you feel good when you get up in the morning. That's what you look back on when you get home at night and think, I did it myself today. I'm a self-made person. Be careful. Be careful. Because whether you realize it or not, you are 100% dependent on God. That breath you just took, God gave that to you. And that next one you're about to take, it's in His control whether you get it or not. And though when we're out of work and have no source of income, yes, then we return to thinking about how much we depend on God for our income, don't we? But if you've got a steady job right now, you're no less dependent on God for your income. Proverbs 18.10 says this, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. And like a high wall in his own imagination. The rich man's wealth is like a high wall in his own imagination. You know, one of the clearest indications we have that we've entered the last days, those of you who are taking the Revelation class with me, you'll know this. One of the clearest indications we have that we're in the last days, those days right before tribulation and right before Christ returns for his church, comes out of the letters that Christ gives to the seven churches in the first two chapters, three chapters of Revelation. One letter in particular written to the last of those churches, the seventh letter to the seventh church, a church in the city called Laodicea. We know from proper interpretation of that book that that letter to the seventh church is also a picture of the nature of the church overall in its last days, in the days right before Christ returns. So we can learn a lot about the church of the end times by looking at the letter written to the seventh church in the book of Revelation. Here's, what, here's what's said about that seventh church. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say... I am rich and I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you don't know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You know, this church in Laodicea, this is a dead church. It's a church that looks successful. I mean, if you were to walk up to it from the outside, it looks like it has everything going for it. I mean, if it were in today's terms, it would have a huge building, right? Lots of grounds, lots of programs, lots of activity. But it's comprised chiefly of unbelievers. Unbelievers. It's a church too preoccupied with its own wealth and its self-reliance that it doesn't know how truly desperate and needy it really is. It's a church blinded by its own wealth. Folks, it's the church today. Welcome to Laodicea. There's a story I read just recently about an African man, a, a man who lived in a poor village, never been outside of his village. Missionaries in his area had come and began to teach and help that area. This man had particularly been involved and had shown a lot of promise as a man who might actually enter ministry. And as a reward, the pastor, the minister that was there in that region, brought him back to the United States for a short trip as sort of an opportunity to expand his horizons. And he came here for about six weeks. And at the end of that trip, they had a dinner for him and they asked him what was his impression of being in America. Would he mind living here? Would he like to stay here? Boy, his response was insightful. He said, you have a wonderful country. It's very blessed. But I need to get home. Because if I lived here any longer, and listen to these words, I'd lose my dependence on God. That's a smart man. So how much dependence on God do you think we really exercise on a regular basis since we live here all the time? Understanding the biblical perspective of prosperity is truly a matter of understanding God's sovereignty. Let's start with rule number one. God owns everything. Psalms 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. I was so in, enjoyed the fact that the hymn that David started us off with was exactly, or the second hymn, it was exactly that theme. God owns everything, folks. Everything. Whatever's in your bank account right now, God owns that. He's given it to you for a time, but he owns it. 
In fact, I said I wouldn't talk about tithing. I won't, but I'm going to go off on that topic for just a moment. Do you know, when we tithe, you're not helping God. I hope you know that, right? You're not really helping Him at all. You're not paying Him back. There's nothing He can't do without your money, by the way, or mine. In fact, if you were here in the last week when I talked about prayer, the reason you tithe, exactly the same reason you pray. You're not changing God. You're not impacting His plan. You're not making something possible that otherwise would have been impossible. If God wants to do it, He'll do it with or without your money. It's His anyway. You don't do it for Him. You do it because it helps you. It's to our benefit to obey Him in that way. But secondly, since God owns everything, He's going to determine how much wealth He allots to each person on earth. Did you know that, by the way? Those who are rich are rich because God wanted them rich. Those who are poor are poor because God wanted them poor. Have you had a preacher tell you that lately? No, it's not because the poor are not motivated enough. It's not because the poor don't have enough self-esteem. And the rich didn't get there because they're brilliant. 1 Samuel 2.7 The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low and he also exalts. Proverbs 22.2 The rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. And there's a lot more if you want to go searching on that topic. So let's get this straight. He owns all things. He's determining where his wealth goes and how it's used. And he's in control, therefore, of all wealth on earth. He awards it according to his own pleasure, not according to our desire. And Christ taught in Matthew 6 that the Father knows what you need and he's prepared to take care of you. And since he's promised to take care of your earthly needs, guess what? I don't need to worry about it. Well, that saves a lot of time. I'm freed up. Now what am I going to do? Well, gee, he says, first and foremost, seek his kingdom. Okay, my to-do list. Seek the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It means support other believers by using your spiritual gifts to their benefit, to the edification of the body of Christ. It means to do the Great Commission, bring along others into an opportunity to become believers. It means do whatever you can to glorify God in his kingdom on earth. Without regard for whether you're going to have food, clothing, or a place to live. God says, I know you need those things. I'll take care of those things. If you trust that statement, you'll spend your time where he tells you to spend your time. But if you don't trust that statement, you waste your time worrying about what you're going to eat, or where you're going to live, or what you're going to wear. And number two thing on your list is seek righteousness. Seek his righteousness, which means concentrate on your own walk. On your sanctification. On becoming Christ-like. And we can talk at length about how you do those two things. I don't plan to tonight. But the point is, that's what he said do. The rest he'll take care of. Does that sound like the prosperity gospel you've heard lately? The prosperity gospel is take that notion and flip it on its head. By seeking prosperity and thinking of nothing else but prosperity, you'll please God and he'll re- you'll see that pleasure in how he gives you material blessing. To what, to what benefit? To, to, to whose glory is that? Where does that lead you? So if we were to heed the words of Christ, if we as Christians were actually to do what he says in Matthew 6, what are we going to get from God? In other words, what should our view be toward prosperity? What should we be thinking about with respect to prosperity if we're doing the things God told us to do? What's the biblical answer? Contentment. You remember that? When's the last time you heard somebody talk about contentment? We are to find contentment in whatever God has chosen to grant us, since we know it's in His control and according to His will. We know that His will is best, and therefore we're going to be content with whatever He gives us. Proverbs 37. Two things I've asked of you. The the psalmist writes, do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me and give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. That I will not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? And nor 
that I be in want and steal and profane the name of the Lord. You see the problem? Don't make me rich so that I have temptation to steal. And Lord, don't make me, or don't make me poor, rather, so that I have temptation to steal. But don't make me rich either so that I might depend on my riches instead of you. That's called contentment. And our trust in God will give us that opportunity to be content, no matter what happens. Paul said it best in 1 Timothy, and this will be one of the last things we touch on tonight before I go into the passage. 1 Timothy 6.3, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy and strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment, Paul says. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can't take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich, listen to this, those who want to get rich, they fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Boy, if that isn't a picture of today, I don't know what is. The preoccupation the world seems to have with money and the way it's now come into the pulpit is responsible for men and women wandering away from the faith, looking for a false doctrine, a false gospel. As he says in the first verse, there are men and women advocating a different doctrine. He ends by saying this, flee from those things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. There's so much more I'd like to say about the men and women who are preaching these unbiblical prosperity doctrines. And I will, but I'm going to wait till next week. I'm going to address the issue of these teachers more next week. Meanwhile, I'd like to use the rest of our evening to go into... Truthfully, one of the least appreciated and, I would argue, one of the most important biblical truths that you'll find in Scripture concerning God's promised blessings to His children. In fact, if you want, you could call it the true prosperity gospel. There is a prosperity gospel here. There is one, but it's not the one you've been hearing. It's the proper view of wealth, one that trusts God and glorifies Him rather than our own selfish desires. So... Let's begin with a simple, basic idea. Most of us would agree, I'm sure, that there are, in fact, promises given in Scripture for believers to be blessed, to have the blessing that comes from obedience. And yes, on occasion, the Scriptures will talk about blessings that are material, things like the blessings of a child, or the blessing of a good spouse, a good wife is often called a blessing, or just the fact of a good harvest is a blessing. Yes, those things exist in Scripture. But more attention is given in Scripture to a different kind of blessing, one that's different from the one that's being taught today by false teachers. And Christ himself alludes to this blessing in Matthew 6. This is an introduction to the passage, not the passage itself. But listen to these words in Matthew 6, 619. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. No doubt you've heard this. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. Or where your, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. You've heard that, right? We quote that to children when they ask for their allowance. Don't we? We quote that to people who go out and get a storage shed. None of you have one of those, right? You know that stuff you store and never use, but... You can't part with it, so it's in a storage shed. You haven't opened in six months, but you're paying it every month. And there are more of those every day. What is treasure in heaven? What does it really look like? What is he saying when he says treasure in heaven? And how do you store it up? 
How do you store it up? Christ gave us an idea of these things in a parable that we're going to study tonight. A parable in Luke 16. Turn with me, if you will, to chapter 16 of the Gospel of Luke. parable we're going to study tonight has often been described as the most difficult parable to interpret in all the Gospels. If that's true, then I think I understand why it's true. I think I understand why that would be so. It's because the concept that Christ is teaching through this parable that we're going to study is so absolutely foreign to our culture. I don't think we have the beginnings of an understanding of this principle. It's so different from what we're told everywhere we turn today. In fact, I don't think I've ever heard it taught. Go with me into Luke 16, and we'll begin in verse 1. Now, he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management for... You can no longer be manager. And the manager said to him, or said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. So that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, Who will give you that which is your own? All right, well, at first reading, you have to be struck, don't you, by the parable's paradoxical message. It appears to have several internal contradictions, doesn't it? I mean, on the one hand, you have the master here who's ready to fire his manager for mismanagement. But then that same master turns around and praises the manager for being shrewd after it appears that that manager has gone out and cheated the master out of even more money. Doesn't seem to make sense. And then this manager, he looks like a genuinely detestable character, doesn't he? One who embezzles from his boss at every opportunity, and yet in the end, it's almost as if Jesus seems to praise this man's behavior, doesn't he? And what exactly is the wealth of unrighteousness anyway? What what is that referring to? And How does all this fit together? Well, let's sort this out. Let's understand what Jesus is teaching us here. Because if you understand what he's teaching, it's going to change your view of how you use your money. Well, as usual, in a case like this, you have to have a little background. So let's go through a few things first. In Jewish culture, and of course this is the book of Matthew, so, or rather it's the book of Luke, but it's Jesus teaching to his Jewish disciples in a Jewish culture, as is in fact, this case for our culture today, wealthy businessmen, wealthy businessmen, the master in this case, he often employed managers to handle the affairs of his business. We do that today. And these managers would attend to every detail of the master's business, and that includes his purchasing, that would include his selling of goods, and if necessary, it would also include the extending of credit to customers who didn't have enough money to pay for the goods when they purchased them. We do that here today as well, right? We extend credit to some of our customers on occasion. But there was an interesting problem under Jewish law. Under Jewish law, it was illegal. It was prohibited to charge usury interest, to charge interest on that debt. 
So though I might extend credit to a customer, I couldn't charge him any interest for what I lent him. That came out of Deuteronomy 23.19. So it had become a custom in Jewish society for a manager, such as the one in this parable, to overcharge the customer by a certain amount, overcharging the customer from what he actually owed the master, and that amount he was overcharging would become his fee. So the manager's fee in this transaction was an amount he overcharged the customer for what the customer owed the master. So whenever that bill is finally repaid, the master would get whatever he had coming due, and that extra amount that the manager charged would be his take, his income, his fee. And it wasn't uncommon, in fact, in that day for a manager to charge, in some cases, a 100% markup for his fee. So now the second thing to understand is as we study this parable, look at the comparison Christ is making. And particularly, look at verse 8. In verse 8, you hear Christ saying, For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Now, what's left off the, at the end of that sentence is implied grammatically. By that I mean, here's how the sentence is implied to be read. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light are to their own kind. So we're making a comparison here between how the sons of this age, in other words, how unbelievers treat one another, versus how sons of light, how believers treat one another. Not how the two mix, but how they compare in relationship to their own kind. So now looking at the details of the parable, we find this manager who's obviously not been reliable in his position of authority. And the master tells him he's about to fire him. Now, it's notable here. He doesn't fire him yet. He's not fired yet. He's about to be fired. Now, why is that important? Well, it means the master is still employing this manager just long enough for the manager to come to him. And as the parable says, he says, I want you to come and give an account of your management. For one last activity, one last thing you owe me before I fire you, bring me the books, let's open up and see what you've been doing to me. And so, temporarily, that manager is still employed. And now the manager sees a chance to help himself. He knows, as I said, his firing is imminent. He's about to lose his job. He's about to leave this comfortable setting he's been accustomed to, the income, the authority, and he's about to have to go out into this world where not only will he not have a job, he may not have any friends. Remember, a, a manager to a master, if he's doing his job well, is a pretty tough, pretty tough negotiator and a pretty, pretty tough man in terms of business. He's like a tax collector, really. He's probably wondering who he can turn to when he's done with this job. Since he doesn't know how he's going to be received, he devises what the master himself called a shrewd scheme. Very shrewd. He realizes that all the debts that are currently outstanding to his master, all these debts that still exist for his master, include some portion that's his own fee, it's his own income, sitting out there, unpaid. Now, he knows he's about to be fired, and it's probably the case that he'll be fired before any of these customers ever get around to paying what they owe their master, right? These debts will still be unpaid when he's fired. And once he's fired, he's lost his right to that fee. He'll never get that money. It's as good as lost. His fee right now is as good as lost because as soon as he's fired, he'll never get it anyway. And since he's still employed and since he still has the authority of the master, as long as he's employed, he decides that if he goes to each of those debtors and diminishes what they owe by the amount of his fee, at least he'll have made some friends right before he's fired. And of course, the master is not losing anything. The master's not getting one penny less than he was going to get anyway. The only one who's out anything here is the manager, and he was going to lose it anyway. He's putting it to work, though it really is not his anymore. He's putting money to work for good purpose, though it's really not money that he can ever see or benefit from in any other way. He's making something worthless into something worthwhile. And that's why he's shrewd, because it's a win-win-win. The manager gains the favor of all those clients who now get to pay less. The clients, of course, save money. 
And the master's business also benefits from the positive reaction these clients are going to have to the discount. They're going to be thrilled that they got to pay off their debt for less money. And I think though Jesus doesn't say it, it may be the case that this shrewd manager's move is enough to save his job, perhaps. But that's not the point of the parable, of course. Now, Jesus, by the way, is not praising this manager's unrighteousness. He's not praising this manager for being a poor manager to begin with. He's not praising him for any of the things he did that's wrong. That's not the point of the parable. He's simply praising his shrewdness in knowing how to use money to the greatest gain possible. And in particular, money that has no lasting value to him. Money that's fleeting. Money that's not permanent. Money that he wouldn't have had anyway. And in that, the lesson comes home for the Christian. But here's where it's going to get even more confusing at first. Jesus says the sons of light don't know how to do what this guy did. Well, what is he asking us to do? I mean, are we supposed to go around discounting what people owe us? Is that what he's asking for? I'm, we're not quite sure what the parallel is, are we? Well, that's where this issue of the wealth of unrighteousness comes in. You know, if you were thinking you understood what wealth of unrighteousness meant, you might be wrong. I mean, if you assumed that it meant wealth gained through some kind of dishonest means, is that what you thought wealth of unrighteousness is? You'd be wrong. That's not what it means. We're not talking about wealth gained by dishonest means. The wealth of unrighteousness, folks, is all the wealth of this world. It's all the money in this world. No matter how you gain it, no matter where it comes from. The wealth of unrighteousness is the wealth, it is the treasure you store up on earth. The money that the sons of this age seek after is the wealth of unrighteousness. The money that perishes along with everything else in this world when it burns up in the end, that's the wealth of unrighteousness. The money that people store up here rather than storing up the treasure in heaven, that is the wealth of unrighteousness. Your bank accounts right now are full, I hope, of the wealth of unrighteousness. Why is it unrighteous? Because it's not eternal. Because it is the economy of the unbelievers. It is the basis for the unbeliever's trust. It is the thing that an unbeliever relies on for security. It is the thing that the unbeliever thinks matters. It is unrighteous because it's not the thing that matters to God. Nor should it be the thing that matters to a Christian. It's called unrighteous because it's the money the world values. Now let's put all this together and understand why Jesus compliments the sons of this age while criticizing believers. Well, just like the manager, unbelievers in this world today, the world we live in now, are willing to influence people and to win friends, to advance their position in this life, all with the benefits that they can gain from their money, right? They use their money to improve their life in this world. I mean, that's the goal, right? The one with the most toys at the end wins. That's what this world wants. If you run into an unbeliever in this world, I guarantee you their every waking thought, by and large, their motivation for probably everything they do, every decision they make, comes down to money and what it buys them. And all their trust is wrapped up in that. And they're running out of time, and they're trying to get the most they can in this world with the wealth of unrighteousness. And they're very shrewd, and they're very good. Unbelievers can be some of the richest people in this world, can they not? They know exactly how to play this system to get the most out of it while they're here. That's what being shrewd in this world looks like. And they do that because for the unbeliever, the money of this world is all they have. It's where all their trust is. Now, the sons of light are criticized for not dealing with one another, you and I together, in other words, in the same shrewd way as unbelievers deal with themselves, between themselves. And here's the secret. Here's the secret to understanding this parable. If we live as if we were sons of this world, if we live as if we have no future in eternity either, If we live as if the money of this world is what matters and we store it up and we focus on it, we put all our trust in it, 
We're pretending that the money we have here is our treasure in heaven. But it's not. The money God has given you right now is called the wealth of unrighteousness. And it's going to burn up when this world ends. Or at the very least, you're going to leave it here when you die. But what if I told you there was a way you could turn it into the treasure in heaven? You could essentially place it into a deposit here that would be available for withdrawal in eternity. So that when you end up in the messianic kingdom, that time Christ will live on this earth for a thousand years ruling and you with him. That you came into this world with a big bank account. And I'm not preaching that your motivation should be riches. I'm saying Christ himself said store up treasure in heaven. And I'm telling you this parable says the way you do that. You take this wealth of unrighteousness that he says that the sons of this world are so shrewd with and you use it to store up treasure in heaven. Look at what Jesus says in the parable in verse 9. He says, make friends with your earthly money so that they will welcome you into eternal dwellings. Which friends is he talking about? What kind of friend can be there to welcome you into an eternal dwelling? Only another believer, folks. Spend your money now, the wealth of unrighteousness, that worthless thing that won't go with you anyway. Use it up while you have it, but spend it on believers. And I don't mean take them out for an ice cream cone necessarily, although I'm available after the service. No. I'm talking about in the way Christ compares the work of that unbeliever. He says, these sons of light do not use their wealth for their own benefit for advancing their prosperity in eternity. They use it as if they're unbelievers in this world and it's all going to perish with them. Unlike the favors that the unrighteous earn with their money, favors that are going to perish along with them, we can bring eternal friends into the kingdom with us. And they'll welcome us in. They'll remember us. Folks, do you realize that the folks you meet here on this earth who are believers, when they're with you in the next life, yes, they will know you. They will remember you. Scripture tells us that King David himself who we know is a believer, will be resurrected and will return to being on a throne ruling with Christ over the nation of Israel. That's written in Scripture. We know he's going to be there. He's going to be recognizable. He's going to be back in his old role. And so will you. You'll be recognizable. And so will the people you know. So whether you're helping fund outreach ministries that establish new believers or whether you're supporting the body of Christ by funding Christian organizations or whether you're providing financial aid to the widow or that poor sick person that lives down the street is a Christian or whether you just place an extra check in the, in, the, in the tithe offering once in a while. It doesn't matter what you do as long as you know you're serving the body of Christ as God calls you. You're storing up treasure in heaven. And yes, you can also do it through your service. But the issue today is wealth. Do you see the folly now of storing up a lot of money and passing it on to your kids? I, I love my kids too. I don't want them to go without money. But you know what? I'd rather have that money with me in the next life where it matters for an eternity. And what it means to have riches in the next life, I don't know if it's money in a bank account. I don't know if it's privilege in terms of authority. I don't know if it's coming in some other way. People talk about the size of the house in eternity. I don't know how it'll be. I know that Christ said store it up there. And I know his parable said that at least the sons of this age know that they can get the most bang for their buck by using it to serve their interests. We have eternal money we could be using. The money God gives us here now could be spent in such a way that it will bring us into eternity with friends waiting for us who remember the good things we did with it while we had the chance. You know, a man who makes a million dollars in his life and spends all but the last penny of it before he dies in support of the kingdom of God will be far richer, according to Scripture, in the next life than the man who earns that same million dollars and saves every penny of it and goes to death with a million dollars in the bank. Now, what would free you up to do that? Under what condition would you be willing to start spending your money freely for the kingdom? I'll tell you what it would be. It would be so much trust in God that you don't worry about what you eat or worry about what you wear. It would be someone who says, I'm going to spend everything God gives me, and the more he gives me, the more I want to spend on the good of his kingdom. And I'm not talking about poor stewardship. We all know there's a balance here. But I am talking about generosity toward the body of Christ in whatever way you want, to whatever organizations, people individually. However, do what the shrewd manager did. 
If you hoard your money, if you focus on it, if you worry about it, if you spend your whole life trying to get more, save more, earn more, glorify yourself with it, then you better enjoy it while you can. Because in eternity, you're not going to have much to bother with. But if you live contently with whatever God has given you, and then determine to put every penny you can to work for the glory of God and for his kingdom, winning friends who will greet you in eternity, then you will certainly see eternal treasure there. So which prosperity gospel do you want to believe? The one that says storing it up now matters, or the one that says storing it up in heaven matters? I'm going to end with Psalm 49. Listen to Psalm 49. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth will speak wisdom and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle on the harp. Why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me? Even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. No man by any means can redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever. That he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. For he sees that even wise men die, the stupid and the senseless alike perish, and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever, and their dwelling places to all generations, and they have called their land after their own names. But a man in his pomp, will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. Father, as we go to you in prayer to end our teaching tonight, it is so humbling, Father, to remember that in our day-to-day decisions of finances, we are so often displaying so little trust in you. Father, we are taught not to live as the world lives. And Father, the world lives trusting in their own strength and in their own might and in their own wealth. And they seek after wealth, Father, because it is the only thing they can trust in. And Father, we ask forgiveness for those times when we have imitated the world so much in that way. When we have taken the money you have given us, and rather than spending it, Father, as we can to make eternal friends, to glorify you, we hoard it, Father. We store it up. We spend it on selfish desires. We waste it. And then, Father, because our needs are stronger than our ability to provide for them, we, we run out seeking those who would teach us that we can have all we want and that you will give us all we ask. Father, we know that earthly fathers do not give their children all they ask because they know it's wrong. Father, we know you would do no less. Father, I pray that as we continue studying the Word of God and learning about your sovereignty, that we would not go past tonight simply waiting for another teaching, we would consider, Father, what you've spoken tonight through your Holy Spirit. That as we have made decisions in our finances in the past, may those decisions, Father, be forgotten so that as we look forward, we would have the courage to make new decisions. Father, you know my heart. You know my heart is not to preach tithing. I'm not asking, Father, that your people would send their money in any particular way. Father, you know the teaching from my heart and according to your Holy Spirit is that the money we have is to your glory, for your kingdom. And however you ask us, Father, to use it in that way, we should respond. Because it does not go with us unless we invest in eternity. I pray, Father, that what we've taught here tonight will stay with the men and women who have heard it so that as teaching arises in the future, teaching that may tempt them, Father, to indulge their worst desires and their sinful, prideful 
nature, the same for me as well, Father, that we would all hear that teaching and know it for what it is, a different doctrine. And remember the words that you gave through your Son, that we are not to worry about what we will eat, what we will wear, where we will live, that we will rather, Father, seek your kingdom and your righteousness. I thank you, Father, for your word and for a time in it tonight. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.